Welcome to another edition of The Tennis Tragic. My name is David Kalina. With me, as always, is co-host Matt Rochford, straight out of Sydney, Australia. Hello, Matt. David, how are you doing? Good. I'm, I'm doing a traditional intro here. I was listening to our very first published episode, Tsitsipas's Shoelaces, kind of a, a known classic in the tragic circles. Uh, and I'm, I'm missing uh, our other co-host, Mr. Alex Dawson, who's, uh, who's on Ernie duty. He had, a, he had his first child a couple weeks back. Yeah, Ernie's a really cute baby. I met him for the first time on the weekend. Nice. Um, but yeah, Alex is not with us. What what did we do for that intro on the first episode? It was not unlike what I just did. However, we had not yet named ourselves the Tennis Tragic. In fact, we had a whole conversation during the podcast about what we should call the podcast. Because, uh, like, I think we were we were considering the idea of calling it the Inside Out as an homage to a certain type of shot. I think the thing that conf- that ultimately convinced everyone to go with the tennis tragic was when we realized that tennis tragic had two T's in it, and so does a tennis court. Mm. So there was like a little bit of like thematic resonance. Also, this is before we started doing all the like radio dramas and you know like kind of leaning into some of the more imaginative talk opera aspects of the podcast and uh yeah i think i think the choice that we made in some small way kind of foretold like how we would evolve you know into a, a podcast that does like fashion rundowns and monologues and uses music yeah because um tragedy and the arts really go together comedy and tragedy um they also, right. they also kind of uh i think complements the uh, the work we do on on big themes like um socialism we look at we look at um god like religion life and death all those kind of big themes that the the tragedies like shakespeare's tragedies deal with you know and we kind of use the lens of tennis to examine some of those things sometimes yeah absolutely um I think the other thing that struck me about re-listening to that episode was what a good time we were having. Like we really were just enjoying one another's company and cracking a lot of jokes. And it, it's it's also like it's really funny in retrospect because this is about three years ago now, and like we're basically talking about all the same people and kind of similar storylines, narratives. Medvedev and Rafa and Andreescu and. Obviously, the episode's title was Tsitsipas's Shoelaces. This was after he had like a whole run of having his Adidas shoelaces get ripped apart during play as he was kind of sliding on hard courts. And there was this whole drama in Canada where he was playing Nick Kyrgios and he had to, you know, have his shoe fixed. He like opens his bag and there's multiple shoes, but he doesn't think they're good enough. So Leander Pays has to like repair his shoelace for him. And uh, it's funny, though, you know, like his gamesmanship has has been a thing that's come up. You know, it's been a bit a bit of a pattern in his his career to date. Yeah, totally. He's moved on from the shoelaces to the long toilet breaks. Yeah, well, and that that era has concluded. It's been legislated out of the game. Right. Yeah. We've seen a lot. So he's going to have to find find a new thing. Yeah, he's gonna. I'm sure he'll find a new controversy. Controversial. <laughs> but uh, anyway, as you were kind of pointing out, we do we do talk about some bigger themes here, and we're uh, we're meeting as Russia has decided to invade Ukraine, wage war on a sovereign nation. Yeah, and it's interesting. Like, um, you know, obviously, there's massive geopolitical you know uh, rivalry going on there between NATO and the US and Russia Ukraine caught in the middle Belarus um, changing the constitution or whatever so that they can have um, uh, nuclear weapons in their in their country again um, 
sort of, you know, we could talk about the implications for the world around this stuff all day, but it's interesting how tennis also, um, you know, whatever, you know, if your interest is, is tennis, then the, these themes are going to seep through into the, into to whatever you're interested in. And in the case of tennis, we've seen Andre Rublev um, sign the camera at the end of one of his matches that he won with no war. Um, we're seeing Svitolina, and, and he's Russian, so like, there's a lot of, it must be said, there's a lot of, uh, there's, a, there's protests in Russia um, against the war um, that their own um, military is waging. But like, there's also, you know, um, they're talking about banning Russian players from playing tournaments. Or at least they, they can't fly the Russian flag whilst they're playing. Kind of like, you know, at the Olympics where you represent the Olympic flag rather than the Russian flag. Right, due to the doping scandals. Um, it is it is interesting in, in the context of an individual sport how this plays out. Because I think it's, it's not terribly controversial to ban the nation from competing in uh, team competitions which are you know infrequent and uh, actually Ru- russia has done extremely well in recent team competitions uh, they won the atp cup last year um they won davis cup last year on the men's side they won the billy jean king cup uh on the women's side and i i always feel like i feel like the way the olympics has handled it in the last two summer and, and winter olympics where they've they've just called the russian team the roc as it feels like a dodge you know it's, it doesn't really feel like a punishment that that makes a, a lot of a difference um and uh but yeah like i guess it's it's been discussed like should we be banning russian players from competing in in events and in a way like holding these individuals responsible for their government's actions um even though all the the noteworthy individuals who i've heard speak out have uh, have kind of spoken out against war perhaps not calling out Putin directly which I think would be an, a very dangerous thing for them to do as citizens yeah I think one of the more interesting little side stories was about Alina Svitolina making a statement I mean Alina Svitolina is Ukrainian and she made a statement uh, in support of her country and against the war and uh, she said that she would not play against Russian opponents, um, which she then like actually reversed course on. Um, she, it's funny how quickly that came to a head. She, she had a, she had a match like the very next day based on that statement. I, I had, I found myself thinking like, she's, you know, like, I, I don't know if that really helps. It's just giving a Russian player a walkover. And also it's, you know, like she did in her message on Instagram, kind of make a distinction about, um, you know, not holding the players, the individuals responsible. Like it's, it's not, it's not their fault. Um, a lot of them are probably, probably unhappy with it, but. Yeah, and I've even spoken out. And if you look at Russia um, itself, there's been protests in 40 or more cities, all the major Russian cities. And like for Russian people to go out and protest against the war is extremely dangerous because it's a very repressive country. Um, yeah. So these people protest at great risk to themselves, and yet the you know there's so much opposition. So that's what I think about the sanctions as well. Like the West are imposing sanctions on Russia, and we know that those economic sanctions hurt um, poor people the most as well. So it's I think um, it's 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 a tough situation for to be a Russian person at the moment you know like you're you don't have a lot of control over what this sort of the Putin oligarchy does and yet you are bearing the brunt of the sanctions and the country's drive to war the collapsing economy it's 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 hurting regular people the most so Diana Yastramska, another Ukrainian tennis player, 
I don't know where she is ranked rank wise right now. Top 40, maybe. Um, really good young player. Uh, she and her sister were basically hiding in a in like a parking lot basement for two days before they could get out of the country. And um, her sister's younger than she is, and. Um, you know, there's a photo of the two of them kind of comforting each other, you know, perhaps like awaiting transit or something. And yeah, I mean, it's just like, you know, another case where we're like, we, we look at these athletes and we don't think of them as human beings with like real human problems, especially on this scale, because this doesn't seem to happen much in the modern world, right? And so, anyway, they, they got out of the country and the, the event that uh, Diana Yastrzemska was headed for like gave them a wild card into the doubles so that they could play together. And then they lost in the first round. But um, it's kind of an interesting thing for a tournament to do, right? I, I wonder if like maybe they did that in part to like so they could they could offer housing or something, you know? Yeah, humanitarian wild card. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, um, you don't see those very every day, do you? No. You know, if the Yastremska sisters were brothers, if they were gender male, then they wouldn't be allowed to leave the Ukraine. Um, oh, right, because of mandatory military service, right? Yeah, not that they're all getting called up for military service yet, but I think the... Ukrainian governments put a ban on males aged 18 to 60 leaving the country. I don't know. It's one of these interesting things like that you would, I don't know very many Ukrainian celebrities, but um, do you know who uh, Vladimir Klitschko is? Is that the Ukrainian president? No, he was, uh, he's a, he was a professional boxer. He was, uh, he was the world heavyweight champion uh, a couple of times. And there were these pictures of him, like in military gear, like sitting atop a tank. You know, it's it's real for these people, even people who, I mean, he's presumably wealthy. I mean, he's a he's a star international athlete, and he's there defending his country. Um, yeah, I think the, the Ukrainian government has been giving weapons to anybody who wants to stay in defending the country, regardless of whether they have any military training or whether they're part of an organized group or not. Yeah, well, that's pretty intense. It's, it's, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy that um, that they Russia actually did invade the Ukraine. Like, I don't think anyone saw it really happening and you know there might have been some you know build up of troops and maybe they would have taken those eastern regions but like the fact that they're like encircling kiev is like really dangerous yeah it's pretty upsetting it's also really impossible to know where this is all headed i mean there hasn't been war on this scale on the ground in europe i mean i guess since maybe you, you could say the 90s i think that you know you had the Slavic nations warring might be the closest comparison, but but for a superpower, you know, like a nuclear power to engage in this kind of aggression is, I mean, we don't really know what the ultimate goal is. You know, it, it was quite clear to Putin and the Russian oligarchy that engaging in these steps was going to result in major blowback, major economic sanctions and hurt their citizenry. So to what end, you know, like if, if those threats don't have any bearing on their decision-making, like, you know, what, what comes next? And I mean, are they just content to, you know, re-assimilate Ukraine into the Russian Republic? I, I haven't even really seen a lot of speculation about what's going to happen. I feel like everything is so immediate right now. It's like, this is the thing that's happening, that the focus is on the war, the struggle of the Ukrainian people, the refugee crisis that's unfolding. I think over 300,000 refugees have crossed from Ukraine into Poland right now. So, and there's a lot of, the, the impression I'm getting is that there's a lot of support for it. They're really, they're welcoming these people in. They're trying to offer them refuge. And The refugee situation is pretty interesting, like, because, you know, Europe is really, Ukrainian people are caught in the middle of confrontation between 
the major superpowers of the world, Na you know, NATO and Europe on on one side and Russia and China, you know, uh, on, the, on the other. And they all have their own interests. All the different countries have, have their own interests. Um, and, you know, Ukraine has been used as this kind of strategic, like, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe you can be part of NATO and then we can have a NATO country right on Russia's border. Uh, that's caused Russia to retaliate. And yeah, now there's, it, now there's a refugee crisis, but it's interesting the way the other European countries are reacting. Like Bul the Bulgarian prime minister was like, oh, these aren't your normal refugees. These are intelligent, educated people, Europeans, mm, who we welcome with right. open arms. The implication being that refugees are usually coming from poorer countries and they could be terrorists or undesirables. Yes. Um, right. So I think all, a lot of the Western support for the Ukraine is strategic. It's, you know, it has a veneer of humanitarianism. And there's certainly, you know, a lot of people around the world who are supporting Ukraine for the right reasons. But um, beneath the surface, there's a lot of politics. There's a lot of um, jostling for power and influence. Mm, yeah, that's that's a fair point. I don't know, maybe an optimistic way to look at it is that, you know, people are kind of appreciating what what kinds of events lead people to flee their their country, you know, to leave everything behind and, you know, take the risk of trying to start from nothing in a place that's not their home where they don't have the support. And yeah, like the the event is extreme enough and is alarming enough to people in the West to, you know, maybe make an exception, but perhaps that can help kind of you know, open some minds up to the fact that like, I don't know, richer nations have a responsibility to take refugees, you know, to like to host them at times. You know, I think there's been a lot of hyper-nationalist pushback against that sort of thing. And, you know, in the United States in particular, there's been a lot of just straight up lying about about what it means and yeah a lot of demonization as you say like people just you know suggesting that like a syrian refugee might be a terrorist just because of where they come from not acknowledging that there's like a really serious need for these people to find new homes and then also like that the vetting process is super rigorous you know it takes it often takes years for somebody to to be uh accepted through the refugee process in the united states yeah If we, if we sort of try to come back to tennis here, the individuals, these, these people, these sort of tennis players being like kind of more ordinary people and not like super rich business owners or um, politicians, or, you know, and yet they sort they have to wear the flag of their country. Yeah. And that's, you know, like... So we're seeing just uh, Russian tennis players and Ukrainian tennis players identifying or choosing, in the case of, of Rublev, to um, rail against their country. But there's, a, there's this kind of need to, um, to address the country that they're, that they're from as in the face of this war. If you're Ukrainian, you're fighting for your country you're representing your country that's under siege and if you're russian you have to answer for putin invading the ukraine um yeah and it's that's that's kind of crazy yeah absolutely we, we've talked a lot about on this show about about nationalism in sport and in tennis in particular how like basically every tennis broadcast that you'll ever watch puts the flag of the person's country next to their name you know it's like they can't just be an individual human they have to be identified by where they're from you know and like i think that focus on national background cultural background like definitely affects the way people think about players it's like i definitely i'll i'll watch american players and be interested in them maybe a little bit more because they're American. Like, I'm going to follow a Jensen Brooksby more than I'm going to follow, uh, you know, 
whoever the the Czech equivalent of Jensen Brooksby is, you know, just because Yuri Vesely. I don't know. Well, <laughs> Yuri Vesely's been around. There was a Czech player who made a semi or a final recently who was kind of unknown. He was like a it's like a I don't know if he's a teenager still. Um, he played Cici, he played Cici Pass. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah, there's a new Czech yeah. player on the scene. You're right. I think it's another Yuri. It's another Yuri. Maybe not. Um, another Yuri. <laughs> uh, let's see. Another monthy, another Yuri, another day, another decade. Uh, y- yes, it was another Yuri. Yuri Le- Lehechka, uh, who made the semifinals at uh, ATP Rotterdam a few few weeks ago. And uh, Lehechka at Rotterdam defeated along the way Mutet, Shepovalov, Vanda Zanschulp, Lorenzo Massetti. Uh, it's a pretty good set of wins there. And uh, and took a set off of Tsitsipas before before falling. And uh, yeah, how old is this guy? He's 20 years old. But I wonder, David, if you support Brooksby, not because he's American per se, but because he shares a language, an accent, a vague culture. You know, he's spoken about on the TV you watch and amongst the people you live with in America, you know, like rather right. than him being essentially American and that's something you that you both have something, you know, deep within inside, deep inside you that's like an American spirit or something. That... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's all these like kind of re- like systems that are reinforcing one another, like the tennis media in the in the U.S. that the tennis channel is covering, you know, the great majority of tennis events, ESPN sometimes, and they will focus attention on American players. They will dedicate segments to talking about American players. They will show American events over other events that are happening at the same time. You know, I, I got to go uh, attend a new ATP event um, about a month ago in Dallas. I got to see the new ATP Dallas indoor event. And, uh, you know, the lineup is uh, was heavily American. I think the semifinals were all uh, were all Americans. You had Isner, Opelka, Brooksby, and uh, Jerome all playing in the, the semifinals. And um, we even had yeah, so it's like there, right? George Bush showed up for the final. Yeah, we went for quarterfinal day. Um, So, you know, and of the matches we saw really, you know, they were they were largely duds. um, Although the the match where Marcos Giron defeated Taylor Fritz was pretty excellent. And also seeing Brooksby, Brooksby like really crushed your favorite uh, Australian player to hate um, Jordan Thompson in the first match of the day. And, uh, oh, I took a picture of myself with a Jordan Thompson, like flag. I was going to send it to you and I forgot. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, Brooksby is one of my new favorites. Uh, that kid is fun to watch and he, he made some waves for, uh, some questionable behavior during a match, trying to like distract his opponent when his opponent had an easy put away. And, uh, he got called out on social media by... Pat McEnroe and somebody else, Chris Everett. What does he do? When, Chris how does he distract the opponent? Right. If so you call out, it's a hindrance, right? Oh, he was he was hindering. He just, he you know, he didn't win those points, so it didn't matter. But basically, in every instance, uh, he just kind of left the ball way short, like at the net. There was just no chance of him winning the point. It was just an easy put away for his opponent, and his opponent. I think you know this happened. A, two or three times in the Jerome match and he Jerome is going to hit a ball at the net and Brooksby waves his arms or uh, another time he took his racket and tapped it on the ground um, which is you know definitely not professional level behavior some uh, commentators were calling it you know like the things that juniors might do you know but but even then, you know, it would be frowned upon and it's something you have to sort of get out of your system quite early because it's cheating. It's considered cheating. Yeah, it's absolutely not sporting and not cool. And yeah, I, I just um, I, I think one of the interesting things about Brooksby is that, you know, he ve- he very much looks like a kind of like 
Midwestern, like American guy. I mean, he might be Californian or something for all I know. He just, he, he looks very American. Uh, he kind of looks like a, like a turtle out of his shell. That's a, sort of the, the impression I get from Brooksby. But he has this wonderful all-court game, you know, like he just, a ton of variety, really clever um, and really competitive. And that, that sort of... He serves and volleys, doesn't he? Uh, not much that I can think of. No, you're thinking of, um, of the French American, uh, what's his name? Who lost to Medvedev at the Australian Open. Oh, Cressy. 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 Yeah. Maxime Cressy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, no. Brooksby is, is very all court, um, tons of variety and terrible serve. That's like, like if it wasn't for the serve, you'd be thinking this guy's headed to the top 10 immediately. He, he pushed Zverev this week before Zverev got disqualified in Mexico and had match point, in fact, on Zverev's serve, but failed to convert and lost in three sets in a match that ended at five in the morning. It was actually a record for the latest finish of an ATP match ever at ATP Acapulco. Um, so lots of like, like crazy dramatic storylines colliding there. Zverev the very next day, like has this total meltdown in his doubles match. I don't know if you want to describe what happened there. Yeah. Um, he uh, disagreed with the call, right? Uh, his opponent's shot was towards the end of their doubles match. He, the opponent's shot was called in. Uh, Zvera thought it was out and remonstrated with the umpire, calling the umpire an idiot and all sorts of things. Ends up losing the match in a super tiebreak and instead of shaking the umpire's hand he attacks the umpire's chair with his racket and the umpire is like trying to get his feet out of the way because he's scared of getting hit by um by Zverev's flying racket it was it was appalling it was um it was really ugly intimidating behavior you know like um mm-hmm yeah, it was a, it was a violent act, at, like directed at the umpire. I mean, he narrowly missed actually striking the umpire. You know. Yeah, it was, it was so bad, and um, not a good look for someone who's already accused of domestic violence. Yeah. I mean, you just look at that and you go, "Oh, yeah, if you're a person that snaps when you get angry, and you don't get your way. You're capable of violence." Like, it, we. I mean, everyone. All the serious commentators that I've read about the Zvera of domestic violence, you know, think that he, that there's the evidence to suggest that he really did, you know, um, hurt his partner, not least to say his partner's, um, uh, says it happened. So yeah, it's pretty damning. Right. It's pretty damning. Yeah. He got, he got defaulted from the tournament and we're, I don't know if you've heard anything, if, if there's further sanctions, but people, there's, you know, I was reading that, you know, because um, remember when Kyrgios threw a chair on the court and the clay court tournament in Europe, I think it was Rome. Yeah, he got a ban. And that wasn't actually, that violence wasn't directed at anybody in particular. It was sort of, he was, right. was very angry and he, was, and he threw the chair on the court and um, swore, but this is like, and I think he, he got banned for 12 weeks or something like that. Yeah, but I think they suspended the sentence. Like, I think that the ATP has a habit of doing this. They'll like, they'll give out this kind of harsh punishment, but then they'll, you know, they'll basically say, well, if you, you're on, you're basically on probation, like we'll let you play, you know, we're not going to like hurt your livelihood or hurt the tour because, you know, somebody that people want to see is missing. Um, and, well, but yeah, different. you're right. I mean, this is different. I mean, Kyrgios, I think that was like after a series of classically shitty Kyrgios behavior where he was verbally abusive, perhaps, and, uh, you know, just, you know, I don't know, tanking matches and acting out whenever he felt slighted, you know, so there's a real history with Kyrgios, and I think it had a lot to do with that. With Zverev, the history that we're all thinking about is the domestic abuse allegation. And like, I really try to not pass judgment on people I don't know well, 
you know, and you think you might know these professional athletes or celebrities well because they're public figures, but you're really just seeing a tiny glimpse of their their lives and how somebody behaves in, you know, on a tennis court is not necessarily how they behave off of a tennis court. You know, look at somebody like Andy Murray, who's frankly kind of an asshole on the tennis court and seems like the like a really right on straightforward, gentle guy everywhere else. So, you know, I, 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 but with Zverev, right. It's like, you can, there's, there's a darkness there that we, we keep talking about it. it, There's like a, there's a fury that, that seems really kind of dangerous. And that doesn't prove, that doesn't prove anything. Like the fact that he acted violently in this way towards an umpire after a doubles match doesn't prove that he hit his partner previously, but um, but yeah, it doesn't doesn't look good, right? And I, I just wanted to mention that uh, when I was watching that match he played against Brooksby at five in the in the morning, I like woke up in the middle of the night and turned on the TV and was like, they're still playing tennis? Like, what the, f- the hell is going on here? And the the commentators, I, I don't remember who they were. I feel like it was like a a European feed or something, and. One of them was like, yeah, you know, Zverev, you know, he's, he's really, you know, his behavior has been called into question, you know, the last couple of years. And the other, the other commentator was like, his behavior's never been in question for me. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I mean, because some people will just willfully deny it. They just assume that any allegation is like somebody's attempt to, you know, make themselves the story or hurt somebody else because they can, you know, and... I don't know how you can look at Zverev and, and think that he's a he's a good actor at this point. He really has to do a lot to rehabilitate his image from where he is today, I think. And he was already pretty unwatchable for me. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's unlikely that someone like Zverev becomes a good actor. I mean, he just seems like pri- uh, comes from a privileged background and has now, you know, tasted a lot of success and money and yeah anyway I'm, I'm sure people can get can be rehabilitated in Europe we don't know a lot about his personal life but I'm certainly not invested in, in him at all it I think it you know he does seem to show us the ugly side of you know of like a kind of um, male entitled anger when he doesn't get his way, that kind of petulance and a, yeah. a, a feeling that he should get what he wants and if he doesn't get it, then that's such an injustice to him and he, he acts violently. And that's, you know, that's not surprising. That's definitely a, that's definitely a part of our society. It's not something in, it's not something individual to, to Zverev, you know, it's like it comes from somewhere. Yeah, and it's... Um... I don't know. As as a fan of the sport, it it tr- it's troubling when somebody exhibits that kind of behavior and they're at the top of the game because all of a sudden you start to have people apologizing for him. You know, he goes to tournaments. He's treated with the same respect and deference as other players, sometimes even more than other players because he's well known and certainly he has fans. You know, like the way the way Tsitsipas got treated for his bathroom break, I don't think Zverev uh, has ever received that kind of hostility from a crowd. And I feel like there's something really twisted about about values when, you know, he kind of he isn't being dismissed. He isn't being put on side courts at majors. You know, like there are ways to kind of put him to sideline him, even if he's succeeding that are, I think, fairly appropriate. Like, I don't think the ATP should be promoting him. I, I think they they should be kind of ignoring him. And, you know... That's uh, the thing about sports under capitalism, you know, it's like the need to make money and the need to please the sponsors. These athletes, you know, are the product and the business side of things cares more about the athlete's image, you know, um, than any kind of moral concern. And yeah, it's it's a real it's really it's a real problem that we reify these these athletes, you know, at all costs because they they sell a product for us. 
Right, and and I feel like tennis being an individual sport, it's more, it's even more dangerous. Like there's there's something riskier about the possibility that somebody like Sasha Zverev could become the number one player in the world and start winning a bunch of Grand Slams and. And basically, the tennis establishment has no choice but to kind of focus on him, even if he is a a potentially really bad actor and a bad person. And I think he would do long-term damage to the sport if he really ascended to the mountaintop in that way and became a dominant force. I, luckily, I don't think that's happening. I think that he's he's reached his ceiling and he's he could win a slam or two i wouldn't be shocked but um i don't think he's gonna be a dominant figure but i also think he's likely to be around for a long time we're gonna be talking about this guy for the next 78 tennis tragic episodes or so yeah yeah you're right which is a bummer i want to talk about you know, like delightful personalities and energetic, creative players and, you know, dramatic conflicts that are like, that that don't feel hateful. You know, it's, it's such a drag. It's like nice players and interesting players that, that don't win, you know, that don't aren't the product, but they don't, they don't, we don't care about them. Um, I mean, we care about them and, but the sport, you know, the business side of the sport doesn't care about those individuals, unfortunately. We care about people who win. I mean, you're a person, Matt, who who loves to, like, kind of dig into these secondary, tertiary players, you know, like to find find an underdog to root for. And, and I really appreciate that, too. But ultimately, in tennis, where everything's a tournament, and the best players are the ones who play the most matches. Like, they just give you more to talk about, you know? So we spend a lot of our time talking about the top players because we see a lot more of them. You know, there's a lot more, a lot more interest and intrigue. It's rare that we have a, you know, a story like, um, you know, like the, did you hear about the Stefan Kozlov story? I saw, I saw that he did something. Oh yeah, he, um, he was Rafa's hitting partner, wasn't he? And he got a lucky loser spot at Acapulco. Right, but the missing piece here is that, so he lost in qualifying. He was hitting with Rafa. And then he goes out and like gets on a jet ski in Acapulco and crashes the jet ski and like is basically just treading water for 20 minutes waiting to be rescued. So he was he was lost at sea. Um, and then he, he got noticed that he was... Uh, he was going to be in the in the tournament as a lucky loser, so he shows up after you know after this pretty intense event, dangerous event, um, beats Grigor Dimitrov in like a long three set match, and then has to face Rafa the next day, um, who yeah was his hitting partner, and uh, you know and Rafa, Rafa just him. yeah just did the ritual bloodletting thing, you know no no mercy. <laughs> not, not that shouldn't, any mercy should have been shown at all. And, you know, it's a, the guy like Stefan Kozlov doesn't have very many, you know, memorable moments or moments that, uh, have may have, have caught our attention, you know, even as tennis tragics and deep fans of the sport. And it's kind of, it took him like, uh, capsizing a, a vehicle at sea <laughs> to like, you know, to generate enough interest. Um, but that was actually one of the things I really liked about going to the ATP Dallas event. So Molly, uh, very sweetly like printed out the draw for me. So it was like, cause I, at the Australian open, we printed the draw and had it up on the fridge and we're filling it out as we went and she printed the Dallas draw and it was like, okay, right. Yeah. Like I'm going to pay attention. Who's in the draw? What are the matchups? And there are four events going on that, that week and Dallas is, was maybe the third most interesting of them objectively just looking at the players you know playing i think rotterdam was happening i think i think maybe um i don't know if rio was happening at the same time the south american clay swing was in in progress and there's like the juan martin del potro retirement match drama and all that stuff and uh but just going to the event and attending all four men's singles quarterfinals and taking it in and like getting hooked into the tournament you know, like 
it was like, oh, suddenly, oh, there is, instead of just being distracted by all the different things that are going on and not being able to choose, it was like, I'm attached to this one, even if it wasn't my ideal lineup. And so I'm paying more attention to, attention to Marcos Giron. I, I watched the, the uh, record tiebreaker between Opelka and Isner that went like 26, 24 or something insane. Um, you know, I just, it, it's fun to like actually commit in that way. And it's hard to do when you're just like watching on television and there's four events going on at the same time. But um, yeah, it was a good experience going, even if the event was kind of middling in a lot of ways, you know, it felt very first year was at a college campus inside a gym, you know, George Bush was there. It wasn't really, <laughs> it wasn't the Australian open. Let's put it that way. Or even, or even at ATP Acapulco, like that 5am match. One of the most exciting things about it was that Acapulco, they moved to a new venue this year and they have like a 10,000 person main stadium. And this match is going on at five in the morning. And there were a lot of people there making a lot of noise. And it was like, this is, this is impressive that that people care this much that they stuck around that they're making noise like this is real tennis energy and like um dallas was like it had really good attendance the the, the vibe wasn't dead it wasn't like you know atp istanbul or something you know there were people there but yeah the the acapulco event looks great I, i'm i'm putting it on my radar fly down there one of these years and go check it out Um, Dave, let's let's talk fashion. Hey, <laughs> yeah, it's time for another fashion rundown. Matt, you've curated a bunch of images for us to to look through. Yeah. So uh, why don't you uh, start by telling us about a uh, friend of the pod, uh, Marco Trungoletti? Well, Marco Trungoletti um, has been wearing the brand Lala for a while, and Lala is like a um, one of the most sort of eccentric um artistic we expressive um sports brands that that um at the, the tennis players wear there's only a few players um bahar and escobar um doubles players wore lala at the australian open and marco tringaliti always wears lala They've got like yeah. these really strong patterns in, in like lightning bolts, pineapples, ghosts, unicorns, and llamas. Yep. Um, are some of the ones they use, you know, really funny, like a really kind of humorous. And um, you were watching his match with Tiafo, who wears Nike. We're watching Tringalitti match all the different permutations of the Nike outfits that Tiafo was wearing with his own different um lala brand um outfits you know there's gray pink purple llama unicorn and the, the one i've got in front of us now is like it's got all these um all these really bold patterns kind of like 70s era kind of patterns and using purples and crimsons and yellows yeah there's some paisley there's like paisley. a paisley kind of patchwork thing yeah. going on there in between like a patch of llamas and you know, like a uh, solid pink. And um, yeah, and then there's the, the ghost, the ghost t-shirt, which has, uh, it has the uh, the fake pocket, like, uh, which is which is also kind of like a delightful kind of humorous touch. Um, I, I went and I went out and, you know, bought a Lala shirt for myself, uh, the llama shirt. Um, the ghost shirt would have been my choice, but it was a, uh, it was sold out. I think Lala is a South American brand, and that's why you're seeing it on Trungaliti and some of these other like lesser-known doubles players. Yeah, uh, but yeah, very delightful, entertaining, energetic uh, kind of brand and fashion line. Like it very much. Yeah, and this was a theme of like the Australian Open, like so much color. Uh, and we'll look at some some of the other um, colorful outfits. There was an outlier though. Benoit Pair, he wears this brand called Be Normal. I think he's the only player that wears Be Normal. And it's all khaki. It's, <laughs> yeah. It's all this yeah. kind of washed out, grey, greeny grey. 
Yeah, and uh, Benoit Paire, like, uh, for fans of the sport, know that he is anything but quote-unquote normal. He is, he is an eccentric individual. He's, he's stylish. He likes, to, he likes to present himself a certain way. He always wears a popped collar. He tends to favor very short shorts. Um, all of which are present here in his be normal outfit, but I think it it was it's it's sort of hilarious like this this beige shirt that he's wearing um, like very dramatically shows his uh, his perspiration. He's just just like this giant V of sweat that appeared every time he played in in these shirts um, in this particular outfit and also I, I could not help but feel like I was looking at a like a 1950s safari captain from kind of like American sitcom that takes place in the Sahara or something you know like there was there's something almost like cartoonish about about the outfit and and yet he's like you know very serious about his appearance you know he's got this very cultivated beard yeah I say khaki but he but it, it is almost a safari that that classic like European man visiting Africa on safari with one of those hats. Yes. And then all that group, like the gray um, shorts and shirt. Yeah, exactly. It's like, like I, I don't even know what the exact reference is. I feel like, you know, like I feel like he would be an extra in like Casablanca or something, you know, like a, a British man in, in Morocco. Right. In the 20s. I don't I don't know. It's it, like it felt very out of out of time his outfit. I liked it. It was. It was out of time and it was completely out of whack with the overwhelming rainbow like lots of fun colors of all the colors of the rainbow that um, we saw in other outfits. Like we've got Liam Brody here and he's wearing Bitty Badu. It's the real up and comer in the been around for a while but more and more players are wearing Bitty Badu now um specifically kind of a tennis brand mm. and and this you know it's out of control all the yellow <laughs> the yellow blue orange red green and navy in this outfit it looks like kind of um it looks like a detuned television but in color yes I was just gonna say the exact same thing. It looks like a like a field of static that is for some reason colorful, like like it's a, you know it's like an electrical storm on an alien planet or something. <laughs> I love that electrical storm on an alien planet. And he also has a more subtle version, which has got predominantly navy, but it's got the electrical storm on an alien planet stripes. <laughs> yep. Yeah, the the more understated version. Um, and then Heather Watson is wearing New Balance and it's it's a really, it's got that kind of hot, you know, kind of summery, like Malibu maybe or something. Um, would you say um, like yellow, orange, purple? Yeah, very, very beachy colors. Um, yeah, like I, what, I, I'm not sure what the word is for this kind of color palette. It's like... It's it's not pastel. It's it's brighter, it, but it's you know it's uh, yeah it's very vibrant, very very saturated colors. It's a Malibu sunset or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Uh, who's that? Tommy Paul's wearing it too, and he's got the um, he's got the white shorts to complement the Malibu sunset top. Mm-hmm. And then we see Rajiv Ram has. Um, the shorts, but white top. Um, but I reckon if you combine the the Malibu Sunset shorts and shirt, you'd really have a winner there. But no one was bold enough to do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Michael Michael Venus wears um, hydrogen, and it's kind of a similar thing. It's like, you know, too many colors, electrical storm on an alien planet. But like, kind of with, but like. Um, if the alien threw up into the electrical storm. <laughs> well, if the alien threw up blood or the alien happened to be an American or a Frenchman, I suppose, you know, he's got the red, white, and blue. Yeah. Um, he also did it with pink shorts though. Mm. He wore pink shorts for his doubles and then blue shorts for his mixed doubles. And then 
um, after he had that tussle with Kyrgios in the doubles quarterfinals, where Venus called Kyrgios an absolute knob, <laughs> um, Kyrgios retaliated with, your outfit looks like something I'd wear to a Halloween party. Which is fair enough. It's, um, yeah, it's uh, it's somewhat garish. I mean, I don't know. Would you would you wear that particular number? No, that's not really not really your thing. Not mine either. I'm for color, but yeah, that one. Yeah, it doesn't hit the mark for me. Yeah, N- neither does the Bitty Badu, to be honest. The Bitty Badu is like a little bit more appealing to me, perhaps because the colors were more strange you know like less traditional yeah. um, less traditionally sporty nationalistic vibes you know like more out there and more staticky Wait, who was the what was the brand that we were just looking at was that hydrogen uh, oh it's hydrogen yeah i mean I, it's interesting hydrogen it feels like their their thunder is getting stolen a little bit you know they were you know some of their earlier kit was maybe a little bit more lala-esque in the kind of like surprising playful you know i mean maybe a little bit darker because they were they would feature skulls and you know stuff like that but still like it it feels silly in the context of a pro athlete playing a tennis match um but yeah these hydrogens are uh, i don't know they they almost feel they feel more 80s you know like yeah I, i it's you have to do it quite well to do that kind of paint splatter yeah with the you know bright colors it's been done a lot and i don't feel like hydrogen's bringing anything new to the table i like i still like their um this skull logo which venus was wearing on his um wristband and headband but Mm, yeah the print is has been done a lot lecoq sportif have been doing this one design for a long time now it's just a a t-shirt with two stripes but yeah they've been bringing new colors to it now we saw a yellow one um, which is virtually the only new thing that they bring to the table they haven't changed their design except for the the color i do love the way um this yellow matches christopher o'connell's banana yeah yeah it's very very matching a you know, mid-game snack situation here. You know, the, the banana might have a Le Coq Sportif logo on it somewhere, but we, we can't tell because it's uh, been mostly consumed in this photograph. Um, I, do, I do, I'm fond of this particular design. I'm not surprised that they've kind of stuck with it for, a, you know, a year plus. You know, it's got that kind of like uh, sunrise flavor. Mm. And it's got a lot of energy, positive, dawn energy i'm kind of bored of it now but um maybe i'm just too used to brands changing like four times a year their their kit design maybe it's fine yeah keep keep the same get a bit of brand identity and keep the the same strap pattern for a couple of years yeah yeah exactly i wanted to draw your attention david to christopher ronkat who had a slight run in the doubles um, he's wearing a plain white t-shirt which uh, I think always catches our attention yeah and just grey shorts but um, how about that bandana I know you're a bandana man um, well I'm a headband man uh, bandana feels like a different thing a bandana is a little bit bolder you know tends to have more pattern action and a little bit more more width um and uh, yeah, right. Uh, you you were kind of you mentioned this earlier. It's got very much a, a Karate Kid vibe. Um. Yeah, um, it does. And I think because of like Christopher Ronkat's um, bandana design has like this almost like a you know like the Japanese sun, the rising sun, with the um, rays of sun emerging out of a central a central circle. Yeah, but in this case, it's interesting because that was my first impression of it. But as I've kind of stared at it a little bit longer, it kind of looks like a slice of a lime or a lemon. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Which I, I think would be an interesting kind of twist on that that classic motif, you know, to just go full full lemon, lemon squeeze mm. on the bandana. 
it's it's very it's a it's an intriguing pattern and it's like um he's indonesian um mm. i wonder if it's like a a sort of an indonesian design or you know it's sort of it does have that kind of southeast asian sort of they use batik you know uh printing methods and stuff like that they mm. and then um Ayoyama, the um, Japanese doubles player, she had a great run with her doubles partner Shibahara. And like her feeler navy skirt and top is really Sailor Moon to me. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's got like the wide flared collar. And uh, yeah, like I like it does have a little bit of, you know, um, classic Japanese schoolgirl kind of look to it yeah with the pleated skirt it's the, the white the white and the navy and the pleated skirt yeah exactly and the stripes yeah it's that's uh, pretty good and i really loved her coach who who celebrated after their win he was wearing a yellow yonix t-shirt but he had the pride um, wristband on the rainbow pride wristband it was the first time that um the australian opens done pride day where everyone wore rainbow accessories I think the US Open did it this year, uh, did it last year as well. But I know the tennis, then the tennis podcast were excited about it because, you know, it's like heralded this new kind of progressive, um, inclusive kind of, kind of day. Yeah, it's interesting. Another thing we were talking about in that Tsitsipas Shoelace episode from the, from the early days was um, the, uh, the kiss between Alison van Utvenk and her partner. Great minute. Uh, yeah, and uh, you know we were we were we were talking about how you know there still wasn't a, a male player who has who has come out as as gay on the on the tour, and uh, there still hasn't been three years later. But um, yeah, these these symbols of acceptance. Um, Liam Brody was wearing that same wristband during his first round match against Nick Kyrgios, and uh, kind of you know caught some attention because of that and. Um, yeah, it's nice to, to hear players on tour, you know, kind of uh, express the that desire for inclusion and the you know a more welcoming attitude generally. I think it's uh, it's a good thing, good sign. Nice to see. Absolutely. Um, Bernardo Pera will Lacoste. Um, I really, I've, Lacoste has been like the, my favorite look from recent times. They've, They've done the classic really well. Like, you know, this is a this is a nice dress. It's like it's all white, but it has like some pastel trim. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, like a uh, simple, straightforward, classy. Yeah, yeah. They've they've really got a tight group on that classic, classy, um, traditional tennis gear with with like enough um panache to make it work to make it desirable to a modern audience um but yeah like there's just so many more examples of like, again i think the cost is an outlier here because there's so many more examples of all the color you had naomi osaka's nike which was full of mauve and pink and crimson and um, the ASICs, the ASICs purple, I really don't like this. It's, it looks like a different alien planet with, where they have a different kind <laughs> of vomit that they vomit into an electrical storm. <laughs> yeah, um, th- this is less, less stormy and more like, uh, you know, like a kind of impressionist cloudy sky you know like it's it's a cloudy sky in this very hazy way we're we're looking at Iga Shafiantek and Asics by the way but there's these streaks of kind of like like I don't know like bile yellow um (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's interesting with all the color that you're highlighting and presenting here this is this is a more muted color scape for sure it is still color it's still color and, and it's and pattern wise, it's very busy. 
Um, and Adidas continued to do their tie-dye line. Um, so we had Sitsipas wearing this orange and green tie-dye, um, which is, you know, I think the tie-dye is reaching its... We're, we're being oversaturated with tie-dye in, in tennis at the moment. Mm. Um, there was also a red and blue version that you can see Clara Towson is, is wearing here. Yeah, I, I find that it's an interesting contrast to, you know, well, you, this uh, this next slide you're uh, you're showing here with Feliciana Lopez wearing uh, what is that brand? Joma. Joma, right? I feel like this. I mean, th uh, this is a really cool design here, like a kind of hot pink. But then there's sort of like on the shoulder, there's this there's this break in the pink. There's it's sort of like got these like sharp angle dividing line between the the pink and like a kind of lime green you know, very punchy colors, but the, the pattern is is interesting. But the, the contrast I wanted to point out with tie-dye is just like, you know, tie-dye, you have this range of color and these colors kind of bleeding into each other. But um, but I feel like the Feliciana Lopez, bold colors, sharp lines, that feels more like how, uh, like a, a lot of tennis gear has been in recent years. Um, there was an earlier example in your slides as well. Heather Watson and New Balance, which is like... Oh yeah, yeah, Heather Watson did it too. Rich pink, orange, and yellow, and uh, the lines aren't aren't as sharp. I mean, it's they're clear lines, you know, there's a little bit more shape to them. Yeah, and block colors, which yes. have contrast to each other. Right. Sarana Sistea also, also wore that New Balance. And yeah, and I think you'll be pleased to know that like that that's sort of what we see now since the Australian Open was we've seen um, Medvedev wear Lacoste with the block colours and sharp lines. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, maybe that's maybe that's the style that's gonna win out at the moment. Yeah, it's funny, this his the outfit that Medvedev is wearing in this photograph, he's you know, again, got the red, white, and blue, you know, very traditional uh, kind of color scheme. And then there's just this like peachy orange intruding on the affair yeah. um, on the side. It really changes it, doesn't it? It does change it, but it, it also like, I don't know, to me, it like feels busy in a way that doesn't really work. Uh, I think we have to disagree on that. I like it. Huh? Okay. Yeah. We will agree to disagree. There's no disputing taste, Matt. No. Yeah, that's all I have for you on fashion, except um, to say that Venus Williams has done a deal with Lacoste. Yeah, let's let's follow up. Let's finish with this because this is pretty pretty excellent uh, Vogue. Yeah, she did a Vogue fashion shoot with Lacoste and. You know they're really doing that class. They're they're really leaning into the classic collars, stripes, tracksuits. You know, and then she's wearing it in one photo. She's wearing like that really old school tennis knit, um, knit, right. knit jumper with the with a collar. But there's a you know there's a sort of a fashion take on it where there's different colliding stripes, um, sort of asymmetrical. Yeah, yeah, that's super cool. And I, I mean, the, the sweater does make me feel like she's about to get head off for uh, for school at Hogwarts. Um, <laughs> and you know, even that that collision on the collar, where the, the the two sides of the collar are are composed differently. Is it like tan, yellow, and navy on one side, and then red, white, and blue on the other, where the white is ribbed? Yeah, there's like all these different expressions kind of coming through in this particular piece. I really like it. I don't know what's going on there, like with the yellow streams. Like, what is that? Okay, so the yellow, that's the big Lacoste alligator or crocodile. Crocodile. Um, oh, yeah. That is in yellow on the cream jumper, but there are loose threads coming from the, cro the, the yellow crocodile. On purpose. Very, 
on purpose yeah. really long dangly threads wild yeah it's a wild detail it's like a like a psychedelic swamp creature and she's wearing a pleated beige skirt she's also got a baseball jacket kind of um with a big lacoste on it and some really great knee-high socks that kind of echo those stripes on the um, cardigan yeah and there's a, there's a good old hoodie as well oh that that is right up my alley that lacoste hoodie i would rock that in a heartbeat it's like a, you know like the the maroon but uh, it's interesting it's got this feels like like the collar is very high i mean it's a hoodie and the collar connects with the the hood and there's the the kind of the Lacoste logo, not the not the alligator logo, crocodile logo. The the textual logo is in um, an outline over a like a very large pocket. It appears to be like kind of a flap pocket. Very cool. Yeah, it's almost like a like and with that high collar, it's almost like a rain jacket. Yeah, kind of a hoodie. You could cross between a rain jacket and a hoodie. I bet that thing costs four hundred dollars, but. I know. Sergio Takini are getting this great um, tracksuit at the moment. But um, it's just so expensive. $300 for a tracksuit. Yeah, I mean, Lacoste has always been a little on the high, high end scale, and uh, just in terms of like design, not always very appealing to me. But this is, this is clearly an attempt to be more fashionable and you know it's it's that it's that interesting crossover between like athletic gear and and like high fashion you know like this is something somebody would wear to a to a casual party with um you know rich and famous friends yeah yeah well that's the fashion wrap up all right we've wrapped it up thank you matt i love love those segments and the the images it's a fun way to reflect on the the personalities and and the events of recent weeks and months it's good stuff 